As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. Alexander Lukashenko, the dictator of Belarus, has said some odd things over the years. Whether it's the river behind his childhood home that gives you magic manly powers, or Lukashenko bringing his preteen son to the UN in a full military outfit complete with medals, needless to say, he has his oddities. But on March 1st, 2022, Lukashenko gave a press conference that sent alarm bells ringing throughout Europe. On the 1st of March, it had been less than a week since Russia had begun its invasion of Ukraine. And at this point, Russia was still advancing on all fronts. People were on TV measuring Ukraine's future in hours rather than days. And Lukashenko gave a televised presentation showing a map of the Russian gains. What would have been a standard propaganda speech, though, became worldwide news because of a small red arrow about 15 centimeters by 2 centimeters. This arrow here was showing what many believed at the time to be the next phase of the war in Ukraine. The arrow indicated that once the Russians had captured the western port city of Odessa, they were ordered to march on and enter Transnistria, the breakaway Soviet Republic inside the borders of Moldova, in an almost beat-for-beat echo of Russians entering Donbass before the full invasion of Ukraine. This move by the Russian forces would mean that rather than the standard 1,500 troops Russia usually has inside the breakaway state, Transnistria would home an entire army group. Tiraspol, the capital of Transnistria or Predovistria, is a crucial city to Russian and Soviet planners. Most of Moscow's plans for a westward war with NATO during the height of the Cold War have their forces arming, restocking and refitting in Tiraspol before advancing into the Balkans and Central Europe. This small city many people haven't heard of would be the jumping off point for many of the Soviets' main westward invasions. This small little red arrow seemed to indicate to many that Russia planned on conquering Ukraine for dinner and having Moldova for dessert. Questions about Moldova's future were now on the table like Ukraine's. Questions were asked about should Moldova begin mobilizing in preparation? Should they be asking Ukrainian forces to help invade Tiraspol from the east and clear out the large supply caches inside Transnistria as a preemptive strike? Should Moldova be cutting a deal with the Russians to make some sort of deal to avoid missiles raining down upon their cities as well? And whilst panic began to creep in in the halls of Moldovan power, other neighbours to the south felt the pressure come down upon them too. It wasn't just the Moldovans who shuddered at the thought of Russian troops conquering the entrance to the Balkans. The Romanians were probably the most panicked. If Ukraine were to fall, it would already mean they would share a long border with Russia in the north and another shorter one in the south, opening up to a giant Russian pincer movement that could meet in Bucharest. A swift Russian advance might also encourage ethnic enclaves, the Gagals or the Hungarians, to call for the breakup of Romania. And if Moldova were to fall as well, well, that would mean a direct hostile frontline with Russia that stretched over 1,000 kilometers with Romania. And that 1,000 kilometers doesn't include the Serbian forces building up on the other side of the country. 
Again, all of this seems like paranoia these days. But when Lukashenko's map came out, it looked to many like Moscow may be dusting off the old 12 days to Paris plan. At the time of the map's release, Moldovans and Romanians began in serious talks. These two countries often seen as kin states, more like little brother and big brother than anything else. They began frantically formulating plans of what to do. And there was even serious talks of could Moldova reunify with Romania and return to its pre-1939 borders? With a sweep of a pen, Moldova could be dissolved and join NATO and the EU at once. Knowing full well that a mission to these organizations would take Moldova off the dinner table and away from a hungry Russia. But how would the process actually work? Would the US even allow it? And after the panic had passed, would Moldova immediately regret it when they became a mere province of a greater Romania? Or would Romania immediately regret it when they have to take on the Moldovan debts and take on large chunks of Moldovan, Ukrainian and Russians into their voting bases? Would Romanian and Moldovan reunification actually be a benefit if the threat of invasion was taken off the table? And if this backdoor to membership is open, would it mean states like Kosovo can reunify with Albania to join NATO? Well, to answer these questions, we turn to our first guest. Part one. One of four. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Well, they both um, have uh, traced their origins back to the Roman Empire, um, hence the name Romania, as you can see, uh, incorporates that legacy. Uh, Moldova is, uh, down the years, has been originally a province of Romania, but uh, since really the Declaration of Independence 1991, that was, um, Moldova is a separate independent Republic recognized as such by the United Nations. But as I say, a large proportion of his population has uh, the same origin as that of the population of the Romanian state. Dennis Delatant is the Emeritus Professor of Romanian Studies at the University College London School of Slavonic and East European Studies. He's also a visiting professor of Romanian Studies at Georgetown University and an expert on Romanian and Moldovan geopolitics. He joins us today. Yes, certainly there's a very close uh, cultural <clears throat> relationship between the two states, that is Moldova and Romania. Politically, their fates have been really decided by the larger um, empires that uh, down the centuries have uh, controlled them. So in the case of Romania, for example, um, this really, Romania only 
became came into existence as a kingdom uh, towards the end of the 19th century. Uh, and at that time, it didn't include what is today now the territory, or largely today, the territory of the Republic of Moldova. But before 1918, Moldova was roughly um, territorial, territorially the same as Bessarabia. And Bessarabia, between 1812 and 1918, was part of the Russian Empire. And so it has a significant Slavic Russian and Ukrainian element in the population. In 1918, Bessarabia was awarded under the Paris Peace Settlement at the end of World War One. was awarded to Romania. And that was on the basis of its majority and majority population being there uh, Romanian. But at the same time, there were significant Russian and Ukrainian populations. And those significant Russian and populations have carried through into present-day Republic of Moldova. Prior to World War I, Romania was actually a lot smaller, with the Romanians inhabiting the area between the Black Sea and the east of the Carpathian Mountains in the east of the Balkans. But Romania fought with the Allies in World War I, the side that redrew the maps after the Great War, and because of it, it was awarded parts of northeastern Bulgaria, Bessarabia, modern-day Moldova effectively, but they were also awarded Transylvania on the other side of the Carpathian Mountains. This meant that Romania now occupied a large chunk of ethnic Hungarians living on the other side of the Carpathian Mountains. And even to this day, Transylvania remains part of Romania, with huge chunks of people living in Transylvania still speaking Hungarian rather than Romanian. So this seeming ethnic mismatch how does that shape the relationship today between Hungary and Romania, who are now neighbours both in the EU, both in NATO, and have had this dilemma now for over 100 years? The great powers of the time, the United States, Britain and France, awarded Transylvania to Romania. Um, the Hungarian minority, uh, according to the last Romanian census of a few years ago, was 1.2 million in a population of something like 23 millions, although it has to be said that those 20, many of those 23 million Romanians, something like two or three million of them, since the pandemic have moved westwards within the European Union because Romania is a member of the European Union. So 1.2 million Hungarians today living in Romania alongside roughly 19 million Romanians. The relationship is good. They are both members. Uh, they're both members of NATO. Uh, Romanian aircraft within NATO patrol Hungarian airspace. Hungarian aircraft patrol Romanian airspace. Um, there are occasional, um, <clears throat> we might say, incidents which demonstrate the, a certain resentment from Hungary about the loss of Transylvania. Uh, in 1918, but they're not enough really to disturb what are fundamentally good economic uh, and political relationships between the two countries. Romania at one point was one of the staunchest members of the communist bloc during the Cold War, but its exit from communism was one of the most spectacular, with Iranian protests in 1989 starting as a celebration to the leader and quickly turning into protests against him. And within a few hours of the protests starting, the dictator and his wife were lent up against a wall and shot on live TV. 
The Romanians had turned against Moscow at that point, but what was the relationship like between Bucharest and Moscow? It was a very touchy relationship because um, under Ceausescu, Romania pursued what we might call an autonomous policy rather than an independent policy from the Soviet Union. So Romania was a country that um, uh, exported and imported, had commerce, commercial links with the West, including the United States, um, much to the annoyance of the Russians who wanted to keep Romania firmly within the communist trading bloc that is known as Kair or Comicon. Um, <clears throat> so Ceausescu's policies really were to try to weaken Romania's links with the Soviet Union, but without uh, disrupting them to such a point that it would prompt uh, Russian retaliation. Um, let me just give an example. Ceausescu condemned the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in August 1968. But uh, Brezhnev, Leonid Brezhnev, the head of the Soviet Communist Party, in a Politburo meeting, that is in a meeting of his party in 68, effectively said, well, we don't care what Romania says. We know that Ceausescu is a nuisance. Um, we will just ignore what he has to say. And that really was, I would, I would say, summed up very much the relationship between the powers. Yes, Ceausescu was a nuisance. He was annoying to the Russians, but as long as Russia's security interest wasn't threatened and Romania remained a member of the Warsaw Pact, and as I've said of the economic bloc, Kaya, so the Russians were willing to tolerate uh, Ceausescu's um, actions, his Ceausescu's policy of autonomy. A lot of the defense planners around that period of time, although allied with Moscow, often referred to the phrase, Romania only has one true friend, and it's the Black Sea. Why would Romania try and take a much more detached view of Europe as opposed to other Warsaw Pact nations like Poland or Hungary? Yeah, that was a, a well-known comment um, uh, made by Emil Bodnarach, uh, who was uh, effectively, uh, for a long period of time, effectively Ceausescu's number two. And he was uh, he made that remark when talking to uh, a senior American diplomat um, and pointing out that Romania is Romania's geographical position, of course, limited its freedom of action politically. Um, it had a very long border with the Soviet Union. Um, as we've as I've just pointed out, it was a member of the Warsaw Pact. And so the sort of leverage that Ceausescu had vis-a-vis -vis the Russians was rather limited. And we could say, we can say that he was very skillful. Ceausescu was very skillful in his dealings with the Russians. Uh, um, he was uh, much more, I think, negative, or we can give a very negative view about his policies internally within Romania and the repression, the repression under his regime. But in terms of foreign affairs, he was a very skilled operator. Uh, and he did his best to avoid uh, really provoking the bear, taunting the bear of the Russians. At the end of the Cold War, during the collapse period, many of the ex-Soviet states plummeted into civil war. One of those being Moldova, just north of Romania, which was officially part of the Soviet Union, unlike Romania, which was a separate state, but in the Warsaw Pact. When Moldova became independent, the country began a civil war between the Romanian-Moldovan-speaking population in the majority of the country, 
and the ethnically Russian Eastern Slivero Transnistria, or Transdenista, depending on who you want to talk to. We have an entire episode already going through Transnistria, so you can check that out if you want to go really into detail about that one. But as a major oversimplification, it's a Soviet-style republic inside the borders of what the UN would deem to be Moldova today. They speak Russian, they have their own passports, they align with Russia, they house a Russian army garrison, and they are staunchly defended by Moscow even to this day. So with Russian troops still stationed in Moldova just over the border from Romania, is there apprehension in book arrest that Moscow may move further than what they have? Um, yes, there certainly is a, a lot of apprehension in Romania. And of course, um, it's very interesting to see, um, I think, a public opinion a poll taken in January of this year amongst Romanians regarding NATO membership. And 60-odd percent came out in favour of NATO membership. And this is even before Putin's invasion of Ukraine. So I, I guess that if a poll was taken today, um, that percentage of um, support for NATO in Romania would be somewhat higher. Um, Romania um, or the Romanian public public opinion is very cautious regarding Russia. It doesn't uh, really have much trust in Russian statements and Russian actions. Uh, In fact, uh, the history of the countries or the two countries show that uh, Russia for its own reasons Um, has wanted to extend its influence within southeastern Europe. And of course, if we look at the map, uh, Romania is inconveniently in the way of Russia's uh, age-old desire to reach Constantinople, that is to be the head of the East and to be a successor, if you like, of the East Roman Empire, to be a leader of the Orthodox Christian community and strategically to control the Bosphorus, to control the states and the entry into the Black Sea. So the invasion of Ukraine, of course, has uh, really reinforced Romanians' fear that Putin is really seeking to to exert even greater control uh, over southeastern Europe. And that has reinforced Romania's uh, desire to desire a desire that on the diplomatic front has been it reflected over the last 10 years that NATO should focus much more closely on the Black Sea uh, as an area of strategic concern uh, for NATO, given Russia's designs on the area as a whole. And again, it's often, I think, overlooked in the commentaries we've had about Snake Island, for example, where Um, the Russians have sought to regain control over Snake Island. And that is because of the oil and gas deposits that lie under the continental shelf around Snake Island. These are massive deposits, which uh, under arbitration in 2009 at The Hague were divided between, were split between Ukraine and Romania. Well, now Russia seeks to take the role, assume the role of uh, Ukraine in um, uh, taking control of those deposits by occupying Snake Island. And this, of course, is a, a, a major cause, cause of concern to Romania because Snake Island is quite close to the mouth of the Danube Delta. The northern arm of the Danube Delta is really under the control of Ukraine. But should 
the Russians seek to and they manage to create a corridor from Odessa to uh, Moldova um, into, in fact, Transnistria, uh, then this would pose a, pose a major threat to the commerce uh, that goes through the Danube Black Sea Canal out into uh, the Black Sea. So uh, there are very, very significant dangers uh, posed by the Russian aggression in the Ukraine if it is successful in uh, controlling, first of all, Odessa, and then moving on to the mouth of the Black Sea, and then beyond that into the breakaway province of Transnistria, the province that has broken away from Moldova. When traveling through Romania and Moldova, you tend to meet with a lot of people who think that Moldova is what would happen to Romania if Russia got its way. As Moldova is much more Russified than appearance and debatably culture than Romania is. So why is it that even though Moldova and Romania speak virtually the same language and have virtually the same pre-World War II history, that there's so much more Russian influence in Moldovan culture and politics than there is in Romania? Well, that was because uh, Bessarabia was, uh, or if you like, the area known as Bessarabia after World War II was reacquired uh, by the Russians by the Soviet Union, and therefore Stalin made from that area, the former Bessarabia, the Moldovan Soviet Socialist Republic. So it was integrated within the Soviet Union uh, after, or began to be integrated in the summer of 1944. And so we had uh, a long period of time down to the declaration of Moldova's independence in 1991. Uh, Moldova, that is the Soviet Republic, was Russified, uh, and uh, the use of Russian was compulsory within the Republic. So, and still today, the, um, many of the speakers of Romanian stroke Moldovan, uh, in fact, are, are um, <clears throat> very competent and fluent in Russian. Uh, and that is the legacy of Soviet control of the area. You see it, as you've just mentioned, you visited uh, these areas of Moldova. Russian architecture is very prominent there. I mean, that is Soviet Russian architecture. The transport system and the layout of towns, the urban organization uh, of uh, Moldova was um, based upon Soviet urbanization within the broader Soviet Union. Um, the use of Moldovan was restricted for uh, almost 50 years it wasn't outlawed, but nevertheless, there were various restrictions on its use. For example, in the school system, far more uh, attention was paid in the school system in the uh, Moldovan Soviet Socialist Republic to the teaching of Russian than it was to the teaching of Romanian. Uh, and that has had as a, as a consequence um, the wider use of uh, Russian even today in Moldova itself, if we add to that the fact that almost 15% of the population of roughly today, 2.7 million Moldovans, roughly 15% of that population is Russian speaking. They might be Ukrainians, they might be Russians themselves, 
They might be Gagoos, as I've mentioned. There might be even the hundred or thousand Bulgarians who live in Moldova. You can see that the Slavonic or Slavic character of, uh, <clears throat> of Moldova is very deeply ingrained. And in these figures I'm giving you, uh, I'm not mentioning Transnistria, which has a population of today estimated of 350,000. But again, the majority of that population is a Russian and Ukrainian. So roughly 30% Ukrainian, 30% Russian, 30% Romanian stroke Moldovan. And in again, um, from what we can tell from the evidence that has been gathered from Transnistria, the majority of the population wish to keep uh, their ties with Russia uh, and wish to keep the presence of the 1,200-odd uh, Russian troops, the uh, remnants of the Soviet 14th Army, in uh, Transnistria as a protection against what they believe to be uh, Russian, sorry, Moldovan and Romanian um, attempts to seize the breakaway province and to integrate Transnistria into Moldova. Uh, again, there are important economic factors to bear in mind here to explain the population of Transnistria's desire to stay within Russia at the moment. I, I can't tell. I don't think any analyst can say with any confidence what most Transnistrians are thinking at the moment after the invasion of Ukraine. But uh, the economic factors are very powerful here. Russia subsidizes gas, uh, the price of gas in Transnistria, and Romania and Moldova itself cannot afford to do this. Um, the pensions in Transnistria are higher than the pensions paid in Moldova. But nevertheless, energy prices, uh, as we can understand from today's context, are a major consideration uh, in the way in which uh, Transnistrians think. And when I say when Transnistrians think, I include some of that 30% of the population that isn't Russian or uh, Ukrainian. So Russian and Ukrainian makes up 60%, as I've said earlier. Although Moldova is torn between east and west, Romania is very firmly orientated westward. They've joined the EU and NATO and house US bases today. There is no doubt where Romania lies. Since joining the EU, the Romanian economy has grown in huge amounts, and quality of life has also improved inside Romania. Are the Moldovans looking at the Romanian pivot to the west with a bit of envy these days? We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Yes, the uh, Moldovans are certainly envious, and that's why um, so many Moldovans, including Ukrainian and Russian speakers, have um, <clears throat> applied for 
Romanian passports because, of course, that gives them free passage within the European Union. I think, uh, according to the figures I saw from the Romanian Ministry of the Interior, um, something like 642,000 uh, Moldovans, including some from Transnistria, have been granted Romanian citizen or citizenship, in fact, had been granted by August of last year. So that's 642,000 out of a population, uh, total population of 2.7 million. So you, you can see that the attraction of the EU is manifested in the numbers, the large numbers of Moldovans, including some in Transnistria, who are who have acquired and continue to apply. I think the uh, the the number of outstanding um, applications from Romanians for passports stood at the end of 2021, the end of last year, at 786,000. Well, if there are so many Moldovans looking to join Romania and get inside the EU, why hasn't Moldova pivoted toward the West as well? What is stopping Moldova making that transition? Um, well, first of all, I think the Moldovans are split uh, on their views about, uh, let's take the first point, about um, <clears throat> split on their views about joining Romania, first of all. Um, yes, the majority would like to join the European Union, including some of the uh, major economic players in Transnistria, because this would, it, this would ease their business uh, activities uh, if they were able to trade openly with the European Union. Um, I, I think, again, one has to bear in mind <clears throat> that the European Union has these accession criteria, which Moldova, unfortunately, at the moment, is far short of reaching. And I can't see how in the next, it would be, I think, uh, very optimistic of me to say that Moldova would be able to join uh, the European Union within the next six or seven years. It, it's just economically, and in terms of its infrastructure, uh, and in terms of its administrative capacity, it's still not in a position to join the European Union. Um, the European Union has allowed also Moldova um, <clears throat> to join what they call this uh, deep and comprehensive free trade agreement. This was signed uh, in July or renewed in July 2016. So Moldova and indeed Transnistria is allowed to uh, join that agreement. Um, what effect this has had on uh, trade between Moldova on the one hand and the EU and uh, <clears throat> trade between Transnistria that goes via Chisinau or Chisinau to the, to, to the European Union is difficult to assess. Obviously, the big issue at the moment that is reshaping the geopolitics of the region is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. How has this invasion changed the dynamic of the region from Romania and Moldova? The, the Romanians, to their credit, diplomatically, have been pointing out to NATO um, how significant the area of the Black Sea is, and indeed, of course, of all those states 
that border on the Black Sea, um, how important this area is for the security of NATO. And uh, NATO has fallen short, in my view, in um, examining closely the threat posed by Russia, especially after 2014, after the annexation of Crimea, the threat posed to the security and stability of the area of the Black Sea. Now, the Romanians themselves, I think, could have done a lot more to bolster their own military presence. For example, Romania, as we know, is a maritime state, but it has, to put it rather bluntly, no navy. It only has a very small number of corvettes. It has very few tanks. Um, its armor in its military is, is outdated. Um, <clears throat> there are constant arguments in the Romanian party, in the Romanian parliament over the amount of money that should be spent on acquiring weaponry, um, or there have been certainly in the past. So the diplomatic presence of Romania, as I say, is very positive in furthering or drawing attention to the threat posed to the southeastern flank by Russia. But in terms of practicality and practice, the Romanians could have done a lot more. Um, again, this uh, unease, I would say, a certain element of unease is felt in American uh, circles uh, by the fact that uh, Exxon is, one, is a partner in the deep sea exploration around the Snake Island and has been for a number of years, but Exxon has thrown up its hands effectively in, in desperation and only recently sold its interest in the Neptune deep sea venture. Uh, and of course, this means that uh, taken with Russian encroachment and Russian attempts to blockade Odessa, increase Russian presence in the Black Sea, these mean that the future of the Black Sea, in terms of guaranteeing a stable environment in which oil exploration can take place, is thrown into doubt. Uh, it's only if, I think, um, Romania plays a much more forceful role, a robust role in defending the Black Sea area and indeed defending its own interests, that the United States will be able uh, to uh, advance the NATO interest in general in the region. And we, we've seen the United States has done a great deal to bolster the NATO presence, as indeed other NATO members have. But Romania really uh, needs to step up its actions, in my view, uh, in order to counter the threat posed by Putin um, in the Black Sea region as a whole. So Romania looks at its little brother and doesn't know what to do. Moldova, as it stands with its constitution, must remain nominally neutral. But with a growing Russian military presence in the east and a growing economic EU presence in the west, Moldova is torn in two. Under NATO rules, Moldova wouldn't be allowed to join because of its territorial dispute in the east. But what about through a back door? A number of people inside Moldova and Romania have been discussing possible reunification between the two countries, for Romania to absorb Moldova. 
After all, it would give all the Moldovans EU passports and put them under NATO protection on day one. But it would also make Moldovans a minority in their own country and put Russian troops within NATO's borders. So how much potential does this plan actually have and how much of each of the populations is actually pushing for it? Well, to answer that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. A vote for subservience? Um, so the, the relationship between the countries has probably never been better. I think um, it was improving a lot uh, before the war, but the war brought the, the, the two countries and the governments of the two countries together in a new way, I think. Uh, it, it's a level of collaboration that, that I think is unprecedented in, in the history of Moldovan independence anyway. And um, that's because they have a pro-EU government in uh, Moldova and the political, the, the policy objective, the stated official policy objective of that government is to join the EU. And naturally, Romania as a, as a member of the EU is trying its best to enable Moldova to join the EU. Ratei Moshka is a journalist for Reporter.London, focusing on Romanian and Moldovan economics and geopolitics, also having a unique insight into geopolitics with family in both Romania and Moldova. And we're thrilled to have him on the show today. Um, there is worry, that is the, the principal um, national security threat, I think, um, apart from various attempts at destabilizing Moldova from the inside that, that Russia is, uh, is uh, sponsoring and, and directing. But uh, certainly, I suppose the whole future of, um, of Moldova and implicitly of, of Romania, I suppose, if we're talking about potential reunification, all of this depends on whether um, the Russian uh, army is able to reach uh, Transnistria, God forbid. So, yeah, definitely a big worry. When it comes to Moldova, a large percent of the Moldovans living in the west of the country would like to join NATO and the EU, seeing the benefit Romania has gained from this. It's Transnistria that prevents them from doing so. Transnistria would prefer to be annexed by Russia and would vehemently oppose NATO membership. It's an odd question. But why doesn't Kirchner just allow Transnistria to be absorbed by Russia and place the remaining 85% of Moldova into NATO and the EU to gain the benefits from that? Well, that's an interesting question, I think, uh, mainly because um, it, would, um, it would, would create a horrible precedent and it would validate imperialism and conquest and all sorts of nasty uh, political aggression and violence. It's basically the same reason why Ukraine has been fighting for so long um, in uh, in Donbas, and um, I think it's uh, even um, even politically, you know, locally, the the local politicians would have a very hard time just um, selling this uh, this proposition to to the population there. So I don't think that's a, a realistic possibility, actually. What about reunification via referendum? And not saying academics talk about it a lot, but how much support is there on the ground to reunify Romania and Moldova together? On the question of reuniting Moldova and Romania, which uh, just for context, they were the same country until 1940. Um, we should first look at the most recent polling. And one, uh, one poll from January 
in Romania shows around 75% of the population wants re reunification with Moldova. And another poll from early February in Moldova showed 34.4% in favor and 49.9% against reunification. And I haven't seen more recent polling than that. And it's possible that the criminal invasion of Ukraine by Russia has changed opinions. But it's difficult to say which way, although I would speculate that unionist sentiment has strengthened because of Russia's gruesome acts in Ukraine. And uh, despite a strong unionist, unionist streak among cultural figures and the broader population on both sides, Uh, something that has a long tradition going back to Moldova's national poet, Grigore Vieru, and others, and was most recently visible um, at the Eurovision contest with Zdobshi's Dub uh, performing a song that was widely interpreted as a call for reunification. I think, uh, in reality, reunification could only happen under certain political and geopolitical conditions that so far are uh, are far off. So um, I would say that given the state of crisis in Moldova across the economy and national security and the humanitarian issue of war refugees from Ukraine, unionism is probably at the bottom of the agenda for the immediate period. And uh, now we can talk about uh, these the other big issues separately that are uh, bearing down on, on unionism with or without the war, which is first of which is Transnistria. So Moscow's grip in Transnistria is weakening because of the war, because of the poor way that the Russians have executed their intention to conquer Ukraine. Uh, so their failure to conquer Ukraine, basically. So um, the local leadership in Transnistria today has almost daily dialogue with with Chisinau, and uh, I think this is uh, an improvement in relations that is, that hasn't hasn't happened for years, and I think um, the top leaders of Transnistria very much fancy their Romanian and Ukrainian passports. Um, and their commercial links both to the EU and to Ukraine, and all of these would vanish if they took a harder line against Ukraine in this war. But if Russia does make a breakthrough in Transnistria, God forbid, and even if it passes Mykolaiv or worse, Odessa, and find a way to establish a land link to Transnistria to through through which they could bring new forces and new political leadership, that would change the reality on the ground. And uh, this would probably strengthen separatism in Transnistria and make reunification with Romania nearly impossible for the foreseeable future anyway. Uh, so you see how, despite recent remarks by President Maya Sandu of Moldova, reunification is not really simply up to the choice of the people. Uh, Russia is the trump card here because Russia has shown it's willing to use violence and war in uh, in service of geopolitical objectives, and Romania and the EU are not likely to to want war. In fact, if uh, if Russia does penetrate Transnistria somehow, 
I think uh, it would be an existential threat to, to Moldova as we know it, and certainly to Moldovan democracy. And uh, that's not to say they would be able to take control of Moldova, not without a fight anyway. Uh, but uh, it's important to, to point out um, because it, it shows how the Ukrainians are fighting indirectly for the independence of Moldova just as much as they're fighting for their own independence. The official erasure of the border is still some years away, if not a whole generation, in my opinion. Even in the optimistic scenario where Russia loses the war and Moldova joins the EU. As it stands today, the Moldovan constitution does state neutrality is a central tenement of the country's ideology. Do you think that with Russia encroaching militarily from the east and the EU encroaching economically from the west, that we may see that change at some point? Uh, unfortunately not. The, the constitutional arrangement of Moldova um, is that um, uh, Moldova has enshrined military neutrality in its constitution. And Romania is a NATO member and... Um, it's clear that these things would not sit very well together. So in order for uh, for Moldova to join Romania, which is what we're talking about, Moldova would have to uh, revise its uh, its military neutrality. And uh, that's yet another uh, another hurdle to to jump over in order to achieve reunification. And uh, this is not going to be easy because um, this is a uh, to, a, to a degree it's a different debate uh, from from that about unification and um, again it would it would depend on on how the Russians would react so um, it, it is worth bearing in mind that uh, reunification would involve Moldova joining NATO as well I think it would be great to do another edition of this topic and this podcast in a year's time and see see what 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 transpired and whether any of this is is still valid so moldova has three paths before it the first bet on the west openly push for an eu referendum or reunification with romania hoping that russia is too busy to retaliate at the moment whilst also voting to make yourself a minor player in your own country. It would require a Moldovan president to effectively vote for themselves to be demoted to a regional governor. Should they try and go east, embrace Transnistria, hoping to give Moscow no reason to approach in the country's sovereignty, and also keeping the cheap gas, the one advantage of a breakaway Soviet state, flowing into the country? Or should they continue to walk this tightrope? forever fearing Lukashenko's map and forever envying Romania's economic spreadsheets. What should they do? Well, to answer that, we turn to our third guest. Part 3. The Next Ukraine. I mean, obviously, when, when we talk about this sort of relationship between kin states, um, it it's often extremely complex uh, because you're dealing with all sorts of elements of national identity. You're talking about history. You're talking about sort of current political relations. So, you know, even things like the the, the, the sort of 
the overall political orientation of the governments in the two countries can have a have a huge effect on uh, the relationship, and that can change. And so, I think what we're talking about in the case of Romania and Moldova um, is that at the moment. Uh, there's likely to be a much greater degree of political synergy between the two. You have obviously Romania that is a member of the European Union, a member of NATO. Uh, you've got a government in uh, Chisinau at the moment, which is pro-European Union, so much so that it's actually just submitted its application for membership of the European Union. Uh, there's no talk at the moment about NATO membership. And in fact, the, the Moldovan constitution outlaws uh, joining any political military alliance. It's, it's, it's constitutionally guarantee of, of, of neutrality. So we're not talking about NATO at the moment. James Kerr Lindsay is a visiting professor from the University of Kent and a research associate at the London School of Economics and Oxford University. He's also an expert on Southeast European politics and runs a fantastic YouTube channel, James Kerr Lindsay, focusing on geopolitical issues around the world. And we're thrilled to have him back on the show today. So from a political level, uh, it's, it's, it's very complex. And, and from an identity level, uh, here again, I mean, you're, you're dealing with a situation that you very often see in these, these cases where there isn't a uniform view that exists. You can't say that every Romanian will have in their heart a burning desire for unification with Moldova, just as you certainly can't say that for Moldovans with Romanians. It will vary according to whoever you're talking to. Uh, and sometimes in the case of context, again, you know, I, I often remember, you know, the case of Cyprus, that even people who weren't sort of particularly felt particularly close to Greece when Greece was playing football and doing very well, were suddenly quite happy to drape themselves in the blue and white Greek flag. So I think, you know, what we do see is in these situations that, you know, we're, we're dealing with a very complex situation. By and large, though, it seems that sentiment in favour of some sort of unification between Moldova and Romania lies very much more on the Romanian side of the of the border than the Moldovan. Figures vary enormously. You know, some polling has put it as high as 70, 80 percent even of Romanians who would support some sort of unification. Polling actually suggests it's, it's significantly lower than that. And if you really press people on the reality of unification, then it could be lower still. Maybe, you know, as some people have said, maybe as low as 20, 30 percent. Whereas in Moldova, uh, the polling at a high tends to come in around 40 percent. But, you know, again, could, could fall down to just one in five people support it. So overall, what we're talking about is a very, very complex situation that's that's built on all sorts of elements of national identity, but also uh, political orientation. Both NATO and the EU have been moving eastward for years, inviting many countries from the former Soviet bloc into NATO and the European Union. So why is Moldova still left out in the cold? Why hasn't Moldova been offered that membership yet? Well, I, I think, that, you know, the, the most interesting element is that, you know, what we saw in the case of Romania was obviously we saw the overthrow of Ceausescu. Uh, and although um, it's had governments which have brought in people who uh, had strong links with the the, the communist left in, in Romania, uh, that Romania has quite clearly set out a course uh, for European Union membership. Whereas, of course, in, in Moldova, what we've actually seen in that case is that while there have been governments uh, that have been more pro-Western, uh, at the same time, what we've also seen is governments that are far more closely aligned with Moscow. 
so they've never really been able to get their act together in the same way that the Romanians did. And so that in large part explains why we haven't seen Moldova move closer to the European Union in the way that obviously we saw uh, in the case of Romania, uh, especially, you know, throughout the late 1990s and then eventually its membership in, in January 2007. So as it stands today, where is the majority of the Moldovan economy facing toward? How much influence does, let's say, Romania have on Moldova's economy? Well, I mean, I think from all accounts that there there is quite a lot of uh, degree of engagement between Romania and Moldova. And, and Romania does sort of, uh, from what we can see, is sort of putting money into the, the Moldovan economy uh, that, you know, will point out that, it you know, it, it gives aid to Moldova. But of course, you know, so much of this is driven by by politics uh, from from, you know, outwardly, at least uh, that, you know, things things can change. So I think, yes, Mold- Romania does certainly have an influence in Moldova. Uh, but again, a lot will depend on the nature of the government that we see in Moldova. When you dive into the data around a reunification vote, one of the major sticking points for any Moldovan on the fence is the fact they will likely take a back seat in the future Greater Romania. With many of the respondents on the poll pointing towards the treatment of Hungarians inside Romania, or even the Gagals inside Moldova itself. How much of a sticking point do you think this really is for the majority of Moldovans? Well, I think, you know, the, the view would be that, you know, ethnic Moldovans, many in Romania would see them as as really Romanians, that they speak Romanian, uh, that, you know, they, they are just redeemed Romanians. So in that sense, I I don't think there's quite as much concern. There are, though, uh, significant problems in all of this, because, of course, Moldova has existed as an independent state. And um, the problem that we would see is that many Moldovans would say, look, you know, even if we like the idea of unification with Romania, we just don't want to be broken up into sort of districts and that whole identity removed. And so there's a lot of talk that, well, you know, maybe some sort of autonomy arrangement uh, could be put in place so that almost like Moldova, even if it joins into Romania, uh, would take a place almost like a bit like Scotland in the United Kingdom, so that it would retain a lot of its own administrative powers. Uh, Some have even suggested that a a federal settlement uh, could be a good option for it. The problem is that Romania is very, very nervous about autonomy arrangements. And in actual fact, it, it, it prohibits them. Uh, and that, of course, is looking westwards towards the Hungarian community in the country uh, in Transylvania. And there's a real sense that, you know, that there's a large degree of separatist sentiment that if they go down that path, then that's going to eventually lead the way um, for Romania to break up. So because Romania is so concentrated very much on another potential issue of separatism, uh, that it doesn't actually have the mechanisms to be able to accommodate uh, Moldova's integration with some degree of its own identity. Now, on top of this, the other problem that you have, of course, is this element that within Moldova, uh, you have a, a Russian and a Ukrainian uh, community, uh, and that there could very well be demands from both of them for a degree of autonomy uh, within their, you know, within their space, if you like, or at least some sort of representation uh, in the country's governance, which one would expect, of course. I mean, you know, this is this is the way that we now think about these sort of things, that these sort of communities must have some sort of representation. Now, I think there is a real degree of nervousness uh, in, in Romania about the, the possibility of bringing in 
what could well be, and this is leaving aside Transnistria, probably about 100 to 150,000 Russians, if you then include uh, Transnistria in that as well, you know, which is a big issue which will also need to be solved, we could be talking anywhere up to a quarter of a million Russians. And I think there are a lot of people in, in Romania who do feel very nervous about that, especially under the current circumstances. Um, you know, is this going to be opening the door for, for Russia to, to make a claim that, well, you know, you've got a Russian population and we are ultimately the defenders of Russian uh, speakers. And so, you know, whether that's going to inject Russian interests and even if it doesn't, it could still affect the politics in Romania that, you know, a lot of these Russians are likely to to vote for uh, left wing parties, parties with ties to the former communist uh, era. So I think, you know, that there, there is certainly a lot of a lot of nervousness about the, the possibility of integrating Moldova. Uh, and I think there's also a lot of questions about how it would even be done uh, in a way that might even appeal to the, the Moldovans themselves. Romania shares no borders with Russia, but it does share a lot of borders with Russia-friendly countries. It shares a very long border with Serbia to the west, a proud Russian ally, shares a southern border with Bulgaria, who it still has territorial disputes with, and has increasingly seen Russia-friendly candidates enter its parliament. It borders Hungary with Orban at the helm, and depending on how badly the war goes, it could potentially have Russian troops in former Ukraine sitting on its border as well. Does this surround of Russia-friendly governments affect how Romania views the region? Well, I think Romania would certainly be sort of looking around at its various neighbours with with a degree of concern. But of course, I mean, even in the Ukrainian context, I mean, uh, Romania has been sort of quite careful uh, in how it's approached the issue. And, you know, I I was over there a few weeks ago and, and, and talking with people about this. And, you know, it, it was it was very striking, for example, that um, uh, maybe a month into the war that President Zelensky gave a, a, an overview of where he felt that various European countries stood. And Romania, he gave us an almost a cryptic response of saying, well, you know, we, we believe that they'll do the right thing at the right moment. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it's a very, very confusing position uh, that Romania feels it sort of treads a bit of a tightrope. That's not to say that, you know, it takes a particularly pro-Russian point of view, uh, but certainly on, on the case of the Ukraine war, uh, even though it's taken a lot of refugees in, it's sort of trying to balance its position uh, a little bit. I think I, I don't think there's a doubt that it, overall it's part of the Western alliance on this. Um, but it's it, it perhaps not as sort of gung ho in that that joining the alliance as maybe you know we've seen with Poland, for example. Uh, so it's a little bit more cautious, not quite as uh, worrying, and well, not certainly not nearly as worrying as Hungary, for example, which is is obviously you know there's all sorts of talk about you know Viktor Orbán's position, although we have to also accept that they have signed up to a lot of the sanctions. Um, so Romania finds itself in, in, in a rather interesting position at the moment. And Orban is certainly a very interesting character. He has brought up the issue of the Transylvanian dispute with Romania a few times throughout the campaign. But how seriously do you think Budapest really takes this dispute with Romania? Well, I think it's certainly something that, that Romania takes seriously. Uh, the question is not whether it should take it so seriously, but whether it should take it so seriously. Um, because I think, you know, look, we get into really difficult 
topics when we talk about sort of how do we deal with minority communities, with questions of separatism, secessionism, uh, autonomy. Uh, and, you know, there is obviously a lot of nervousness in Romania about the possibility of Hungarian separatism. Uh, as you noted, I mean, you know, it eyes up other separatist movements across Europe with a, a great deal of concern. Romania is one of the five EU members that hasn't recognised Kosovo's uh, 2008 Declaration of Independence um, and, and takes a very strong position on this. And actually has, has become tougher in recent years, partly as a response to what they've seen happening with, you know, Russia responding to uh, its, you know, ethnic kin in, in Ukraine uh, and, and pushing there. So I think what we do see is that there is a lot of nervousness about it. But on the other hand, as well, uh, you know, sometimes there is a sense that, look, you know, more could be done uh, in order to accommodate uh, you know, some of these minority communities, especially the Hungarians, and, and not necessarily sort of get quite as worked up as they do about it. Um, you know, it, it, but of course, look, you, you're going to have all sorts of, you know, sort of comments from Romanians saying, look, no, no, absolutely, you know, we're responding right, you know, they're separatists and stuff like that. It, you know, it, it, it's obviously a very, very difficult question. And, you know, what we see in these situations is that, you know, countries will say, well, look, you know, we have to safeguard our borders. We have to safeguard our national unity. And this is the way that we feel that it's best done. Whereas others would say, well, in actual fact, if you deprive people of those rights, then you actually encourage uh, separatist sentiment. Whereas if you allow that, then you give an outlet for it, whereas others would say, yeah, but if you do that, then what happens is you give an outlet and then it moves more towards independence. Look at Scotland, uh, even though that did, in fact, vote against independence. But, you know, there's that whole debate of it still on that trajectory. So it, it's one of these ones that, you know, you, you don't answer very easily. It, it depends on who you ask and what their overall political ideology is and, and their outlook. Uh, so I think, you know, that's the way of saying that, you know, in, in the case of Romania, yes, there is a lot of nervousness about it. I feel that probably too much nervousness, uh, but you'll have a lot of Romanians who say, no, no, we and we are nervous and for very good reason. Romania received quite large amounts of EU investment from countries like France over the years. In fact, far above what you would probably expect them to get. So why are governments like Paris so interested in investing in Romania as opposed to Hungary or Bulgaria? It's in a very, very interesting position. So, look, we know that um, Romania and Bulgaria were, they're not the most recent members of the European Union, Croatia was, uh, but they are in many ways, even now, the laggards. And uh, Romanians and Bulgarians hate it when they lump together into the same basket. Uh, you know, they often say, no, we're very different. You know, we may be neighbours, but there's all sorts of different. And I think Romania really feels that in many ways it's made huge progress over the past decade. And to be fair, it has. Uh, and I think this has made that sort of link with Bulgaria um, more irritating for them uh, in, in, in recent years. Um, plus also, I mean, the Romanians are very keen always to point out that they are different uh, from many of their neighbours, um, that they don't have a Slavic heritage, that the Romanian language is actually a Romance language. It's a language that's related to, you know, derives from, from Latin, but is obviously related to Spanish, to French, uh, Italian. Uh, and so I think there's a real sense that you pick up from Romanians that uh, they see themselves very differently from their neighbours and they stand out. And, 
you know, also, I think there's a tendency to forget that Romania is a large country in the European Union context. It's 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 a it's one of the smaller, larger members, if you see what I mean, rather than one of the larger, medium-sized members. Uh, you know, we would put it in, in, in the large member state category. Uh, and, you know, for example, I often point out that when we talk about the, the Western Balkan members that are lining up to join at the moment, so, you know, we're talking about Serbia, Bosnia, uh, Kosovo, Montenegro, North Macedonia, um, the, in actual fact, Romania is large, you know, its population around 22 million is, is, is large in all of those countries combined. I mean, they, they stand at about 17 million. So Romania is a, it's a significant country. It's not a small sort of Balkan state. It's, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's much, much bigger country than I think many people realize. And so in that sense, it's been very important for the European Union to make sure that Romania has uh, has developed and has advanced. And and as I say, by all accounts, I think we've seen a lot of progress. I mean, you know, things are certainly not uh, ideal. Uh, it's still a country, you know, there's still a long way to go, but it's certainly, certainly a great improvement on on, on where things stand. So turning to Moldova now, Moldova has put in an official application to join the EU. But then again, so is Turkey and Georgia and Ukraine. How likely is it that Brussels will actually accept that application? Well, I mean, it was very telling that when, you know, when Ukraine applied for for EU membership, uh, that, you know, there was a lot of fanfare for it. And, you know, perhaps fewer people noticed that that very same week that Georgia and Moldova also put in their applications. Now, I mean, look... to many people, there is the view that we should be taking these countries in as soon as possible. This is about European solidarity, that um, you know, it's important to send a message of a united Europe. Um, and that's all very well, but it's not as simple as that. And, and in actual fact, you know, with the best will in the world, uh, it's not in the European Union's interest uh, to take in uh, a country like Moldova at this stage. Moldova is absolutely unsuited for the rigours of EU membership. And, you know, people would say, yeah, but, you know, it can evolve and it can adapt. Look, the process of EU accession is incredibly complex. It's very time-consuming and for a good reason, because Europe fundamentally is built around the idea of an open economic marketplace. And in order for that to function, it's not just about making sure uh, that goods can be traded freely. It also means that, for example, legal systems are harmonized. That, you know, if you've got the free movement of capital, it means that if you are a French investor and you decide that you want to invest and build a factory in Moldova and you have a local partner and you have a falling out, You've got to be able to trust that the the courts in Moldova will be fair and that, you know, if you're in the right, they will judge for you to be in the right. And so it requires massive changes. It also means that, you know, because you've got open markets, open borders, it means that, you know, if you're producing goods, uh, you know, or agricultural products in Moldova, that they have got to meet a certain standard that you can then export them freely without having to have constant checks uh, within the European Union. And that requires a huge amount of work. So, for example, you know, even things like abattoirs and farming practices have got to be harmonized. And there's all sorts of questions about justice and home affairs that sign up. So joining the European Union is an incredibly complex procedure. And while some would say, yeah, well, you know, but... Yeah, I hear all that, but it should be political. No, it shouldn't, because the, the entire basis of European Union success is 
is is centered on the fact that everyone follows the rules. And if you start taking countries in because you want to make a political point, then you're going to bring the EU down from within. And I think that, you know, this is an extremely dangerous direction to be taking. Uh, and so, you know, what we're actually seeing then is is a little bit more caution injected into this debate at the moment. And it's actually quite telling that, for example, uh, Emmanuel Macron, you know, as, as French president, you know, I think in some ways he's far too cautious about EU accession and, and is, is taking a political position, you know, to try and stop countries from joining unfairly, even when they do meet the, the membership criteria. But he's now talking about setting up, if you like, a second sort of organisational structure in Europe. So you've got the European Union and then something peripheral to that, that countries like Ukraine, Moldova, even the United Kingdom could potentially join, which brings European countries together, uh, but in some sort of alternative structure that is looser for those countries that either don't want to be part of the European Union or aren't yet ready to be a part. So a lot of people may not be aware, but Romanian and Moldovan as a language is fairly intelligible with Italian. And it's why a huge amount of Romanians and Moldovans travel to Italy to be nannies and laborers, sending the money back to Romania and Moldova in the form of remittances. How much do these remittances coming back into those two countries affect the politics and economy and Romania and Moldova's relationship with Italy and the EU? Well, you know, it, it's one of those interesting things that if... You know, many people would say, and I mean, let's be frank, this is a debate that we're having in Britain at the moment, is that, you know, being a membership of the European Union affords you uh, freedom of movement. It effectively gives you a way out uh, and, you know, allows you to take up work uh, in other EU members, you know, retire, study, all of these things which are incredibly important. And so in that sense, yes, many Moldovans would say, well, we don't necessarily need EU membership because as individual Moldovans, we have a Romanian passport or another EU passport and we have that at our fingertips. But of course, it goes well beyond that. Uh, it's it's also worth considering that, you know, EU membership brings all sorts of other advantages. So, you know, even though, you know, we think of NATO as providing uh, joint security, mutual defence, the EU actually has a mutual defence clause as well. So you, you suddenly get a, that. But you get all sorts of societal advantages uh, that, you know, what you will see is you'll get access to EU funds, which can be incredibly important. Uh, you're suddenly finding that your legal system is much better, uh, that your consumer protection rights are much better, uh, health and safety conditions at work are much better. You know, across the board, it leads to dramatic improvements. So if you were to say to a Moldovan, look, uh, you know, you've got an EU passport, that's great and good. You can get all these great things if you leave Moldova or else you can work to join the European Union and you don't necessarily have to leave. You will still be able to get the advantages of it. Are there any other options for Moldova to be looking at, like forming regional pacts with Visegrad countries or a Balkan-led alliance? Is there anywhere Moldova should be looking to go now? Well, this is going to be the big debate, isn't it? I mean, I think we've seen the first move in this uh, in, in terms of EU uh, application for membership. Um, but again, you know, there is, a, there is a sense that Moldova has sort of 
flipped from one particular, you know, from pro-European, pro-Western positions to pro-Russian, you know, pro-Moscow outlook in the past. Is what we're seeing at the moment that question settled? Uh, is after, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, whether Moldova has now made that sort of mental leap that our future lies uh, in Europe with the West and we will start to see, uh, you know, that become settled in Moldovan society. And of course, this is incredibly important because you don't get that sustained push towards EU membership unless this is something that comes from the top. Uh, that, you know, unless you have it settled in the minds of Moldovans, we want to join the European Union and we are going to now embark on the process of reform. And it is a huge process of reform. I mean, there's over 30 chapters uh, in, in the EU acquis communautaire, which is the EU's body of laws, which cover tens of thousands of pages of legislation in so many different areas. And, you know, that requires leadership. And it also takes a settled consensus within society that this is what we want to do. Now, obviously, not everyone's going to agree with this. But what you need to have is that balance of opinion. And so I think the really big question that a lot of people are asking themselves now is, has Moldova made that jump, uh, that mental leap to say, right, OK, we now want to pursue EU membership? Of course, the question of NATO membership is going to be very, very interesting to look at. Uh, you know, as noted, uh, Moldova has a constitutional prohibition at the moment on NATO membership. But, you know, constitutions can be changed. And, the, you know, looking at what's happening with Sweden and Finland, which for long were felt that, you know, there was no hope that they were going to join NATO. And, of course, that maybe that debate will also uh, start to emerge in Moldova. But of course, look, even if the government said tomorrow that, look, we're going to introduce a constitutional change which will allow us to join NATO, the complication, of course, is that there's Transnistria. This long-standing dispute over this, you know, this long, thin sliver of territory which takes up about 10% of the, the, the Moldovan state. Uh, and NATO is quite clear that it doesn't want to have to take on existing issues, territorial issues like this, uh, especially one that involves Russia in this way. So there's a sense that, you know, even if Moldova wanted to join NATO, uh, it becomes extremely difficult until such time as there is also a resolution of the Transnistria issue. Uh, so, you know, I, I think at the moment we'd probably be talking much more about a European integration, EU integration, rather than a full-fledged integration into the West, which one would also expect would include NATO membership. And what do you see in the future for Romania? Do you think its place in the EU will become more prominent or it will continue to sit on the peripheries of Europe's decisions? Again, Romania is such an interesting country and it's a country that, you know, um, has had a difficult history. Uh, I think it still struggles with the legacy of the past. I think that many Romanians feel that they're not given uh, the respect they feel they deserve by the Europeans, that it gets a bad press. And, and you know, it really is, is unfortunate because, you know, this is uh, a very interesting country. It's a large country. It's a country with significant history. And I think, you know, what has held it back is the fact that, you know, it has been the poor cousin uh, of, of the other EU members for, for, for a long time. 
Uh, and, you know, in many ways, while it's also faced all sorts of other problems with corruption, that, you know, there's, there's been political problems, uh, that it's needed to get its house in order. Um, but there is a sense that, you know, that's now happening. And, that you know, I think at that point, now it can start to think much more about, you know, what direction it wants to take. And of course, with the insecurity that we're seeing in terms of relations with Russia, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, that Romania... Uh, has you know it it it, it has a border you know a, a a coastline a Black Sea coastline uh, that it sits on the border with Ukraine and how things are going to be developing in Ukraine. I think you know it there is going to be a sense that you know it it it's going to be more significant uh, in in the years ahead. How, quite how that plays out and how Romanian officials sort of make the most of it. Um, but I, I think I think there is that sort of sense that, you know, this is from a, a geopolitical point of view for the European Union. Uh, you know, Romania is 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 on the front line of, of, of a lot of things that are going to potentially be happening in, in the next months, years, potentially decades. The situation on the ground now is very different to what it was on March 1st. But whilst Russian troops aren't parading through the streets of Kiev, Traspol and the Russian garrison there remain just 60 short kilometers away from the Moldovan capital. And a lot of these questions still haven't been answered. Like what happens if Ukraine's forces collapse or the US loses the will to fight in Ukraine after the midterms in November? These are still fundamental security questions to be asked about the position of Moldova going forward. For now, Moldova seems to be staying upright on that tightrope, trading heavily with the EU whilst allowing Transnistrians to travel freely between Transnistria, where the majority of Moldova's electricity still comes from, and Moldova proper, where the majority of Transnistrians still buy their specialty goods and trade their products. Romanians still regularly call themselves Moldova's big brother. But how far is that big brother relationship willing to go? Is Romania willing to stand up against the region's schoolyard bully. Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week. I've wanted to do this episode for a while now, as I spent good chunks of time in both Romania and Moldova in the past years, and hearing firsthand from a lot of locals just how complicated the sentiment is around this issue is one of the reasons I wanted to do it. Although here at The Red Line, we've been working on more than just this episode, with live panels coming out on our website and Twitter, on subjects like who is Putin's most likely successor and will Marcos change the foreign policy of the Philippines going forward? Subjects that aren't quite big enough to make a full Redline episode. So to keep up to date with all of those events and panels and everything else we're doing, you can find everything we're up to on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at the Redline Pod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at MikeHilliardOz, Oz is in Australia. This episode is dedicated to a friend of the show, Luke Christensen, who has led his Patreon to sign up as of time of recording. This show is only possible with the support of listeners like Luke, who donate a small amount of money each month to help keep this show going. We cannot thank him enough. So if you feel you could spare a couple of dollars, we'd greatly appreciate it. But for now, Luke, this episode on Romanian and Moldovan reunification is thanks to you. As usual, here are our three book recommendations. The first is Bastard Republic by friend of the show Tyrone Shaw. It's an amazing book about his time as a journalist in this region of the world during the collapse of the USSR, weaving fantastic stories with amazing insights into the dynamic of the country. The second book is Balkan Ghosts by another friend of the show, Robert Kaplan, for a look at the history of the region. 
And the third is state building in the middle of geopolitical struggle, in the cases of Ukraine, Moldova, and Predovistria, for a look at the modern geopolitical take. I want to say thanks to this week's guests, Denis Deletant, Matei Rushka, and James Kerr Lindsay. All of you were absolutely fantastic to have on, and we look forward to having you back soon. I also want to thank my staff, Wade McKee, the producer, Perry Grace, Danielle Zivella, Andrew Garbery, and Robbie Sutton, our researcher, writers, and assistants, Mark Spencer, a second voiceover artist, Ross Crabtree, our media specialist, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, Nick Much, our field correspondent, as well as Jonah Gunn, our production assistant. There is absolutely no way I would ever be able to run this show without this fantastic team, and I'm very lucky to have them. The Red Line will be back in another fortnight. But until then, thank you for listening, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.